Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Brittany Phillips was born on October 4, 1985 in St. Petersburg, Florida. She grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and after high school, attended Eckerd College in St. Petersburg with a major in chemistry. However, after only a year in Florida, she decided to return to Tulsa so she could be closer to friends and family. After returning, she moved into an apartment complex across from her high school and resumed her studies at Tulsa Community College. Brittany was described as a well-grounded, smart young woman from a good family. On Monday, September 27, 2004, 18-year-old Brittany returned home to her apartment at the intersection of 65th Street and Mango Road in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She had just returned from an urgent care visit where she was treated for a sinus infection. She spoke with her mother, Dr. Maggie Zingman, around 8 p.m. before hanging up to go get some rest. Unbeknownst to Maggie, this would be the last time she would ever speak to her daughter again. The next day, Maggie tried to call her daughter but received no answer, and her friends were also unable to get in touch with her. When Brittany failed to show up for her Wednesday class, her best friend went to her apartment and found the door ajar and the lights on but didn't go inside. Instead, she called the police to do a welfare check. When they entered the apartment, they were shocked to find Brittany's lifeless body sprawled on the floor in her bedroom. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Investigators found no signs of a forced entry, and the front door was found unlocked. The window in her apartment was also unlocked but closed, and the sliding door on the balcony was found partially opened. In her bedroom, they found the mattress knocked off the frame, meaning there was most likely a struggle before Brittany was strangled to death. There was nothing missing from her apartment, ruling out a robbery, but they were at least able to collect DNA and fingerprints from the scene. At 1.30 a.m. on Thursday, September 30th, an hour away in Chandler, Oklahoma, Maggie received a knock on the door. Upon opening the door, she was met by a sheriff in a raincoat, there to deliver the worst news of her life. Maggie was no stranger to tragedy because she was a trauma specialist who worked on survivors from the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, but not even that could prepare her for the news of her daughter's murder. She was a huge part of Brittany's life and even helped her find the apartment she moved into. Before Brittany moved into the apartment, she and Maggie did research on the area and found it to be generally safe. After the murder, Maggie discovered that the building Brittany was living in had a break-in eight months before she moved in. She also discovered multiple sex offenders living in the complex, which is strange considering there is a high school right across the street. On top of all that, 
The previous tenant in Brittany's apartment had a run-in with a local drug gang. However, leading up to the murder, everything with the apartment and area appeared to be fine, and there were no red flags. There were cameras at the apartment, but since she was found a couple of days later, those cameras had already recorded over the footage from September 27th. At this point, investigators were looking for how the assailant gained access to her apartment. When Maggie went to clean the apartment after the murder, she noticed that the wood lattice on the right side of the French doors on the balcony had been bowed out, and it hadn't been like that before. This led her to believe the killer could have gained access via the balcony. There was also attic access that was shared between apartments. However, investigators were never able to narrow down the actual entry point, but did suggest to Maggie that it could have been someone who worked at the apartment complex. This idea reminded Maggie of an incident that took place a couple of weeks before Brittany's murder. Brittany came home one day to find urine in her toilet, which led her to believe that a worker had been in her apartment unannounced. She said this was a common occurrence, and she had plans to report it to the office. Police also considered the possibility that Brittany knew her attacker and let them in or that she was tricked into opening the door. In either case, they believed someone was watching Brittany and knew she would be home alone that night. Investigators questioned everyone they could find in the apartment complex, including workers, but nobody claimed to see anything. Brittany's ex-boyfriends were also interviewed and quickly ruled out. However, a security guard that worked at the mall near her apartment had taken a liking to Brittany. After the murder, he was suspiciously walking around, acting like he was part of the investigation. But in the end, he was ruled out after having his DNA tested. Keep this in your mind for later. With no solid leads, the case would unfortunately go cold. In 2007, investigators decided to release some information about the crime scene in the hopes of inspiring some new leads. They announced that a light purple pillowcase had been found at the crime scene that didn't match any of Britney's linens, but it never led to any suspects. In 2017, the DNA was sent to Parabon Nanolabs, who were able to create a snapshot of Britney's killer. They then used forensic genetic genealogy, and it matched to a possible suspect. That suspect was the boyfriend of one of Britney's best friends, who she knew well. However, he strangely had an airtight alibi. So, how did this DNA get on Britney's bed? The weekend before she was murdered, her best friend and boyfriend stayed over at Britney's apartment and slept in her bed while Britney slept on the couch. It was ultimately determined that the DNA came from that night. This means for the last 19 years, they were testing the wrong DNA against the 3,000 possible suspects they ultimately ruled out. Thankfully, they still have some other unknown DNA samples that might be from the killer, but as y'all know, testing is very expensive. This makes many persons of interest, including the security guard, once again potential suspects. In order to get the story out there and look for tips, Maggie drives a vehicle around the country with the words caravan to catch a killer on the side. She had gone through four different cars, crossed 48 states, and has driven over 300,000 miles. I don't know about y'all, but that is some amazing dedication. Maggie and the detectives 
refused to give up on Britney's murder and continued to work on it. But sadly, as of 2023, this case remains unsolved. Lori Lee Malloy was born on November 30, 1962, and lived a troubled life and began experimenting with drugs at a very early age. However, she had an immense love for dogs, and during the 1980s, she hitchhiked all the way to Anchorage, Alaska, and learned how to raise sled dogs. After this, she was given the nickname Sled Dog. In 1988, just eight months after marrying a man named John Scary Harry Mariano, he was arrested and charged with assaulting Lori. He sent her a letter from prison which read that she could either testify against him, which would land him in jail for up to two years, or she could ask the state of Rhode Island to drop the charges and he would be out within six months. She chose to testify, and when he was released from prison in 1990, he assaulted her again and violated the protective order. Mariano went on to become a career criminal, committing numerous crimes, including more and more domestic violence. In 1990, while waiting for her divorce from Mariano to be finalized, she began dating another criminal by the name of Thomas Kelly. Before the couple moved to a rural area in Foster, Rhode Island, they would have a daughter together named Lauren. After moving, they would both battle numerous addictions, and during this time, she was still legally married to Mariano. Lori broke up with Thomas in July 1992, leading to a custody battle over Lauren. Shortly after the breakup, she wrote in her planner, Tommy's threats over Lauren will settle soon. Meanwhile, her divorce proceedings were still ongoing. After the breakup, Lori and 18-month-old Lauren moved into an apartment at 136 North Hull Street in East Providence, Rhode Island, and she began dating another man named Henry Costa, who she had known for seven or eight years. On March 7, 1993, Three weeks before her long-awaited divorce from Mariano was set to be finalized, Lori vanished. Henry had grown concerned after not hearing from her for the last six days. Before she disappeared, the two had gotten into an argument about her alleged drug use, and he had been trying to get in touch with her. He then contacted Lori's sister, Allison, who said she hadn't heard from her either, but still had Lauren because Lori never picked her up. According to her sister, this was very unusual. None of her friends had heard from her either, and she wasn't picking up the phone or answering the door. As a last resort, he contacted the police and asked them to perform a welfare check on Lori. When police arrived, they found the front door to the apartment open and could hear the bathroom sink faucet running full blast. Upon entering, they found Lori's nude, lifeless body on the floor of her bathroom. To add to the bizarre scene, there were slices of bread around her body, two drinking glasses, and food left on the dining table, and the refrigerator was full of food but had been unplugged. She had recent bruises on her upper thighs and arm, and clumps of her hair were found throughout the apartment. She even had a tuft of hair between the toes of one foot, strands wrapped between the fingers of one hand, and a bracelet of hair around the other. Detectives removed 14 pieces of evidence, including a hair sample from a clump of light brown hair found in a shoe on top of a table by the front door that looked, as one officer described, as if it had been ripped out of someone's head. Officers immediately classified the case as a homicide, 
and Henry was considered a suspect but was eventually ruled out. Lori's original autopsy was conducted by Dr. F. John Krolikowski, who had lost his license to practice in Massachusetts for frequently misdiagnosing cases, including 20 out of 270 prostate cancer biopsies. He then became Rhode Island's acting chief medical examiner while the existing chief was on medical leave. Lori was his first case in the state. Soon after performing Lori's autopsy and misdiagnosing her death, he lost his license in the state of Rhode Island. It was ultimately determined that she had been unconscious on the floor for two to three hours before she finally died, but she was only deceased for around an hour before she was found. She was negative for illegal drugs or harmful substances and had no obvious signs of recent IV drug use. Dr. Krolikowski incorrectly closed Lori's case and ruled it a natural death caused by an enlarged heart. He did this despite his own notes describing the lack of major damage to Lori's heart. In addition, he never noted the condition of Lori's scalp and never commented on her clean toxicology screening. After this, investigators closed their homicide investigation. No one in her circle besides Henry was questioned not her known drug dealer, mother, sister, or anyone else in her life. Her daughter, Lauren, was eventually removed from Tommy's care after her mother's death. Lauren has been persistent in getting justice for her mother for decades. In 2003, Mariano was found deceased slumped over a park bench. In 2020, an old friend of Lori's named Louise reached out to Lauren on social media. She told her that a man named Peter Fuller was at Lori's apartment the weekend she died and that Lori had died from an accidental overdose. But soon after Lauren took the information, Louise was caught in some lies. She then began backtracking and sounding suspicious, leading many to believe that she knew more than she was letting on or was possibly involved in Lori's murder herself. In February 2021, Lauren obtained a copy of her mother's 1993 autopsy report and challenged its findings with the Rhode Island Department of Health. Lauren stated that she didn't want money or to go after the original medical examiner, but just wanted the case closed correctly. In March 2021, the senior medical examiner handling Lori's latest case review told Lori's family that she definitely didn't die from an enlarged heart and that her body needed to be exhumed for further testing. Her investigation was completely redone to understand her cause and manner of death, refuting the entire original autopsy from 1993. In 2021, detectives located the original homicide investigation reports from 1993 and original histological specimens. Her family expected to see progress in her case by the Attorney General's office, but by September 2021, the Assistant Attorney General assigned to Lori's case stated that he didn't see sufficient reason to reopen her case and learn the circumstances surrounding her death. Instead, he gave Lauren the runaround, which only fueled her fire to keep going. He stated that he would follow up with her within two or three weeks, but that never happened. On March 13, 2022, an independent forensic pathology specialist in New York was referred to Lori's family and asked to review the case. A few months later, the Rhode Island Attorney General's office said they would reopen and re-examine Lori's murder. 
on February 2, 2023, her remains were exhumed for a new investigation, but as of April 2023, the case remains unsolved. Fifteen-year-old Jody Anderson was your typical teenager who enjoyed playing football and loved his friends and family. On September 8, 1979, Jody went to a football game in Rossville, Georgia. He was supposed to ride home with his sister Robin and brother Gene after the game, but instead decided to get a ride home with his girlfriend. This would be the last time they ever saw their brother alive. The next morning, Jody's mother, Joan, received a call from a friend telling her the horrible news that Jody was dead. Joan rushed into Gene's room, telling him about his brother's death. Gene then rushed over to where Jody's body was, across from his girlfriend's house. He pushed the officers out of the way, enough to see his brother's deceased body. Jody was found slouched against a fence with a rope around his neck. Detectives immediately assumed he committed suicide, and it would take three long years before his death would be ruled a homicide. During the funeral, his own mother saw the cigarette burns on his body and saw his hand messed up as if someone had stomped on it. Besides a mother's intuition, Green says, when she saw her son at the funeral home, he had cigarette burns on his arms. And that's not all. I moved his hand, and it was just all messed up, like somebody had stomped it. They tried to get the police to listen, but they weren't having any of it. Finally, after his death was ruled a homicide, they would learn that Jody was actually tortured before being murdered, but the scene was staged to look like a suicide. Over the next nine years, more than a hundred people were interviewed, and Jody's body was exhumed to look for additional clues. Finally, a man came forward with some shocking information. He said he was there the night Jody was murdered and gave the names of the individuals who were involved. He said he and four others picked Jody up at a gas station and took him to a secluded spot on the Chickamauga Battlefield National Military Park where they beat and tortured him. They threw him in a hole, and when he tried to climb out, they stomped on his fingers. The group then hanged him on the battlefield, ultimately causing his death. Afterward, they moved the body near the fence outside his girlfriend's house. The case remains unsolved because the man that came forward was deemed mentally incapable of standing trial. This led to his taped confession and every detail he gave becoming inadmissible. In 1991, the case was handed over to another detective. However, even this detective doesn't believe the case will ever be solved unless someone with first-hand knowledge comes forward. The family pretty much knows who the killers are after the detective on the case gave Gene all the details. However, without solid evidence, the suspects remain free, and as of 2023, this case remains unsolved. Brandon James Kazika, also known as BK or Waterbird, was born on March 23, 1986, in Shawnee, Oklahoma, to Angela Sotattle and Harold Kazika. Brandon was a proud member of the Sac and Fox Nation and was equally proud of his Native American heritage in the Kiowa Potawatomi Absentee Shawnee tribe. He spent most of his life in the Shawnee area and loved to help others. He attended Riverside Indian High School, 
Shawnee High School, and Rose State College. He loved to travel, watch movies, listen to music, and attend car shows and concerts. Most importantly, he loved spending time with his friends, family, and children. He was very spiritual and practiced and honored his native traditions. He had many talents, especially his love for drawing and other forms of art. But his biggest gift was bringing humor and laughter to all those around him. At the age of 35, Brandon was living in the 500 block of West 10th Street in Shawnee, Oklahoma. In the middle of the night on January 30, 2022, Brandon was at home sleeping when someone entered his home with a gun and started beating his uncle with it. The uncle got away and fled to a neighbor's house to call the police. That's when he heard multiple gunshots. When officers arrived, they found Brandon deceased in his bedroom from a gunshot wound. According to those close to him, he didn't have any known enemies, or at least never spoke about any. Unfortunately, there is very little information in this case, and as of 2023, it remains unsolved. Maria Nina Miller was born in the Philippines and moved with her husband, Kenneth Miller, who was in the Army at the time, to the United States. In 2005, Maria was living in Norfolk, Virginia, where Kenneth was working as an Army recruiter. In 2010, he was transferred to Tawanda, Pennsylvania to continue his recruiting efforts. After moving, Maria got a job at the Dandy Mini Mart on Old Route 6 Road in Wysox, Pennsylvania. On February 5, 2011, 34-year-old Maria left work and had the next two days planned off. She told her co-workers that she and Kenneth were going to see his mother, who was sick, at Charleston Area Medical Center in Charleston, West Virginia. Kenneth told the police that they drove to the parking lot of the hospital, and then he and Maria got into an argument. He said she was demanding that he take her to Virginia Beach. He then said he drove her to Virginia Beach and dropped her off at an unknown apartment complex. Maria was never seen again. On June 10, 2011, the U.S. Army reported her missing after it was brought to their attention that nobody could find or contact her. The police then searched Kenneth's vehicle and seized his cell phone records. Kenneth says after she disappeared, he had the court dissolve the marriage. At this time, it is not known if he is a suspect or not. Here's where things get very odd. According to a post I read on Facebook, Kenneth was allegedly cheating on Maria with an 18-year-old girl, but this girl claims they were separated for a year when the relationship started. She claims that Maria went back to the Philippines. This information came from the 18-year-old he was in a relationship with and is now married to. Also, according to her, her parents had gone to the police because they weren't happy about her relationship with Kenneth, but since she was 18, there was nothing they could do. I'm not going to release her name because if it's true that Maria really did go back to the Philippines and doesn't want to be found, then I don't want to disrupt this woman's life. Also on the same Facebook post, someone who used to work with her said she was also under the impression that Maria had gone back to her home country. This case remains cold, and as of February 2023, the FBI is offering $5,000 for information on her whereabouts. There are a lot of rumors surrounding this case, so hopefully the FBI can figure out what is going on. 
The fact that they are offering a reward in the case and haven't been able to track her down tells me there is more to this than we realize, but I guess we will have to wait and see. As of 2023, Maria remains missing and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.